0: Let me invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 4 this morning. This is the word of our God, the Psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you, are not, when you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thanks be to God. Do you ever feel like in worship that uh,
1: God's just got you in this place and He's just got his hand on you and he loves his people. I have sensed that already today as we worship the Lord. Let's pray before we open his word. Oh Lord, let the light of your face shine upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, if you go to the seat of government in different different countries, uh, beautiful buildings, symbols of power... Uh, big statues of, of conquering heroes, a lot of messages, you know, given through this, uh, you know, we are great, don't mess with us, we are mighty, you know, we will endure. Uh, I like the statues that the, um, the Danes have put in, in front of their parliament building, which used to be their palace, the Christianborg Palace. They have three statues guarding the entrance to their parliament building and their uh, their their little children, and uh, one of them represents the an earache, the other represents a headache, and the third represents a stomachache. And uh, when the guide takes you through there, he will tell you that these were put here to basically warn anybody who enters politics that if you come in here and lead, you're going to have all three of these. You're going to be stressed out. Let me tell you, I want to buy those statues and put them in my front yard because that's the way we feel about life in a modern world. Oh, it's so stressful. And there are things just systemic to the way modern life is, the, the busyness that we feel, the lack of relationship that we feel, a lot of expectations that are simply not met just because we're not there. And um, there's, there's, there's a real sense of stress that happens, and we're, we're really stretched out all the time. Um, more pressure, more money to make, more to achieve, more, more, more than at any time in our history and we're, we're, we're stretched out, we're worn down and uh, we need aids and a lot of Advil and a whole lot of cups of coffee to keep this thing going. That we call our stressed out modern lives. The headache, the earache and the stomachache. But today I want us to look through Psalm 4 through the eyes of King David. To not only see what to do with, with the stress of living in a fallen world. But David introduces another concept here. He introduces the concept of how we feel about what's going on in our life. He introduces the concept of anger and disappointment. And what we do with that. You see, this isn't just, wow, we're stressed out. This is when someone has done something to you. Or they have failed to do something, and you have a minus. You have a deficit in your life because of it, and you're left with that reality of that situation. And uh, and what do you do with that? For instance, what do you do when you've been slandered, and people look at you a different way? And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. What do you do with that feeling? What do you do when a coworker takes credit for what you've done and gets a promotion? What do you do, young people, when your best friend suddenly is going out with your girlfriend? <laughs> what do you do when, when somebody on Wall Street, in fact, several people on Wall Street, have made extremely unwise, extremely greedy decisions and have cost people in this room tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars? What do you do with that? You know, I talk to people all the time. Um, I get to be kind of a tour guide uh, through life for, for you guys, you know, to, to, to help us navigate this world by bringing the scriptures to bear and the grace of God to bear in our lives, and there are just different themes that, that come out as I talk to people, and you know one of the big themes that I get a lot of and just sense a lot is, is the theme of Disappointment. Now, I believe that a lot of modern disappointment is because of a lot of modern high expectations of life that simply are not, and some of them cannot be fulfilled. You know, if you went back in medieval times and you were a serf living on the land and you kind of hoed from morning till dark, you wouldn't have a whole lot of expectations. People go to Mexico and, and places on mission trips and they're like, these people are so happy. Well, it's because they don't have the expectations that we have but whether, whether these uh, perceptions are true or not, there, there are feelings of great disappointment that people have in their life. We, Gina and I have uh, some missionary friends who had gone out on the field for 15 years, and, and then they came back, and they were observing American culture, and uh, they said, you know, there's, there's something different. And this, by the way, was a great period of economic expansion, un- unparalleled in the United States. And they uh, said, you know what's different? Maybe it's just us. But there's just this sense of underlying anger and tension. And almost a mild form of rage under the waterline that we are sensing here in America. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Let me tell you, it's a dark place to be. Angry. Under the waterline. It's a dark feeling, isn't it? What should hurting angry Christians do? You think that should be an oxymoron, hurting angry Christians. I assure you, that is not an oxymoron. I assure you, the normal experience of Christians is hurting angry Christians. The question is not whether Christians are hurting or angry, the question is, what do we do with it? That's what David wants to show us, and David says, you call on God. You call on God. And here's the sentence I want you to memorize and talk about over, over lunch today. Call on God in the dark and he will shine his light on you. Say that with me. Call on God in the dark. Say that. Say Sorry. Go ahead. And he will shine his light on you. That's Psalm 4. The first thing is this notion of calling out on God in the dark. Look at the first verse of Psalm 4, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayers. David is in distress. And what's fascinating about this psalm, you know the psalms means, the the word in Hebrew means the praises. The Psalms were the hymn book of of Israel. So many of the Psalms are designed to, to lift up the glory and majesty and wonder and power of God. The Psalms are designed for us to be able to get perspective about our life, the way we're living it now, in terms of our God and who He really is and the fact that He is in control. So the more God is lifted up, the more secure we are and the more we praise Him for who He is. But, but this psalm is a little different in that, in that this psalm is about the lifting up of God. But the primary thrust of this psalm is nearness to God. It's closeness to God. I'm in distress and God is not only God and great, but God is here with me. And I can call out to him and he is here with me. David's in distress, and he knows where to turn. He calls out, he says, Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Interesting phrase, O my righteous God. And sure enough, God is is a just God, and God sees that David David has been wronged, and so David can call out to a God who sees that, who has the ability to correct that. But really, if you look at the Hebrew here, it really should say, um, Answer me when I call to you, O oh God of my righteousness, or God my righteousness. If you've got another translation in the NIV, you'll see that there. And, and this is the notion, not just that God is just, but this is the notion that we have a relationship with God. You know, David knows full well that he is forgiven by God that he is loved by God. And David knows that he is accepted by God and that he, as a sinful human being, can access the Lord God as a father at any time because this righteous God has not only forgiven him, but given David his own righteousness. We, Our righteousness will never merit, will never be good enough for us to have a relationship with a perfectly righteous God. So what does God do? God not only takes our sins away through what Jesus has done on the cross, but he gives us his righteousness. If you'll look at Romans 1.17, a very famous verse, for in the gospel, in this salvation that comes by what Jesus has done, gospel, grace, not by what we've done. I love being a Christian because it's not dependent on me First and foremost, it's dependent on the Son of God who's done it all. And I can never change that. For in the gospel, a righteousness, notice these words, from God. God's righteousness, a righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel, a righteousness that is by faith, not by works, from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so when David calls out, answer me when I call to you, O God of my righteousness, what he's saying is that not just that God's great, but that he's close and that he has a relationship with God. This is certainly not about David's righteousness. You understand, this is post Bathsheba. This is post-adultery and post-murder. It's not as if David's going to stand before God and say, I am so righteous, you ought to listen to me. Oh God... My righteousness, answer me when I call to you. What was it that has that just has hurt David so badly and has caused him to be in such distress? You know, the great thing about the Bible is that very often we know what it is. And in this case, when we link Psalm 3 with Psalm 4, which most people do, we know what it is. Um, do you know who has, is causing his massive distress? Does anybody know? It's his son. It's his son. This son of David, I mean, this guy had rock star, good looks, he was charismatic, he was brilliant, he was intense, he was everybody's favorite. His name was Absalom. And Absalom entered into a four-year project. The Bible tells us that, it was, that he schemed and plotted, and for four years, and the goal of this project was to topple his own father from the throne and take over Israel. And so for four years, Absalom goes out to meet everybody. He talks negative about David. Anything positive, he takes credit for and says, See, Absalom can get it done for you. And he's very much of an operator. And this goes on for four years, and the hearts of Israel move from David David. To Absalom. In fact, when this is written, Psalm 4, 75-80% of the army is with Absalom. Army, the army has gone to him. Absalom has said, come to me at a place called Hebron. They come to him. He says, I am now going to be the king, and we are going to take this army, and we're going to march into Jerusalem, and we're going to destroy anybody that stays in our way, and I'm going to kick my dad off of that throne. Who knows? What he would have done to David. Going to have him arrested if not killed. And so that's what's happening. And and you need to understand. David has no chance. It's over. He's got 20% of the army. No chance. Except for David gets word that Absalom is marching on Jerusalem and he flees from Jerusalem with his much smaller army. Look, if Las Vegas were putting odds on on that battle, the the smart money is on Absalom. But David calls on God. You may remember this about David. This was actually not the first time David's been in this situation. There was a man in... A lot more powerful than Absalom with 80% of the army. His name was Saul. He was the king of Israel. He had 100% of the army. And he was coming after David to kill him. And David called on the Lord. And the Lord delivered David. And so David has been here where he can access this God of the universe and cry out to him in, in such pain because his own son is, uh, has turned on him. And, and so many of his trusted people and generals have turned on him. Absalom doesn't seek God. He doesn't have time for religion. Absalom, he's the kind of guy, he's a self-made man. He made, he made it all happen. And he's going to make it all happen and nobody's going to stop him because he's smarter, he's more charismatic, he's wittier, he's more everything, he's the son of the king and he's going to get it done. He doesn't need God. And here is David crying out to God and, and this psalm captures the hurt and anger of David in this treason, in this betrayal. Look at verse 2 where David shifts from crying out to God to addressing what is actually going on. How long, he says, How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions? How long will you love false gods? Do you know what the glory of King David was? You know, it really wasn't, unlike Absalom, it really wasn't that people recognized how great he was. If you go back to when David became king, the glory of David was the fact that he wasn't supposed to be, that he was only king because God selected him in front of other people more qualified. David, above all people, knew, and his glory was in the fact that this songwriting, songwriting, tender-hearted, worshiping young man was so loved by God. And the glory of David was the fact that it was all about God and not David. Look, when David reached down in the brook and took five smooth stones and was going to put one in a slingshot and go against Goliath, he didn't say, hey, I can do this, I'm a good shot. He said, no, who do you think you are talking about God? You see, the the glory of David is simply the fact that God put him on the throne. And here's the deal, Absalom knows that. Absalom has heard all the stories since he was a little boy from his own father, from other people. This is how your father came on the throne. And Absalom could care less about God. Absalom could care less about the fact that God himself put David on the throne and God himself has not taken David off the throne. And David is so hurt. How long will you turn my glory into shame? And there are some horrible ways that Absalom shamed David that I won't go into because they're a little too delicate right now uh, to say out loud in front of children. You can go and read that yourself. Now his own son is turning his glory into shame. It is Absalom. He says, Absalom I know God. God's done this for me. God has already delivered me once from Saul. God killed Goliath. Absalom you are deluded. You're the person with the issues, spiritually, you're the person that doesn't get it. You're going to lose. How long will you keep on with your delusions? How long will you serve false gods, he says. Let me ask you this question. I think we need to, to think about our own lives at this particular moment. About whether we love delusions. I think we do. We struggle with loving delusions And what we think we can do to make life the way we want to be. The levers that we think we can pull. The people that we think we can manipulate. I'm going to tell you something. It will never work. It will never work. If we love delusions, it will cost us every time. If we worship false gods rather than God, we'll never have peace. The very thing that you are reaching for and peace and satisfaction will always be the thing that is outside of your grasp because God Almighty, the true and living God, simply will not give it to you. He will not. It's a delusion. One of the best-selling books in the last two years, uh, religious books, is, is, is a book that represents what we now call the, quote, new atheism. Atheism has just kind of sprung up back out of nowhere. Atheism's kind of popular again. Um, and Richard Dawkins wrote the kind of the, the, the first big shot over the bow. He wrote a book, and I find it in, in, in light of Psalm 4, a very interesting title. Some of you know the title. It's called The God Delusion. Well, let me tell you something. Richard Dawkins has the God Delusion. Because God is God. And you can say all day long that he doesn't exist and it doesn't budge God. God isn't actualized by our belief. God isn't there because we say he's there and he's not vanished if we say he is not there. How long will you turn glory into shame? How long will you serve false gods? You are deluded. And there are times I think that uh, we feel, in a way, alone in certain situations. It's like, oh yeah, you feel like some kind of backwoods, Bible-thumping, nose-picking fundamentalist, you know? Um, who does that, I mean, is that guy really believe that? Yes. Yes, we do. And we have, and our forefathers have. And David did, and Absalom didn't. Verse 3, know that the Lord God has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call upon him. But then David really gets down to the emotional core of this this distress and stress and the anger that he feels. He he feels wounded. He feels angry. Look at verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. The Bible doesn't say we should never respond to some kind of reality with anger. God has anger. Does he not? When Jesus came and turned all those tables over with the money changers, you know what? He had a righteous anger. When Jesus comes again, we prayed about that earlier, when he comes again to judge, as we say, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, there will be a a wrath, a righteous anger. The, the, The question here is not whether we feel hurt or angry. The question is, what what are we going to do with it? How do we handle this, this kind of push down, below the water level, disappointment and anger? We take it to God. We cast our cares upon Him. Hear me, because He cares for you. And He wants you to bring it to Him. You know, some of you and there are, I think there's a, probably a person in your life for each of you, and it might be different people, so I want to be careful. But some of you, when you were little, you know, you wouldn't get picked for the team, or, you know, your girl, somebody told you you were ugly, or, you know, you know how cruel kids can be, and and nasty and ugly. And so, you know, maybe it was your mom or your dad, and there in the, the still of, of, of your Room before you went to sleep at night, you just could uncork. You know, you could just uncork and say, and then this happened, and they didn't pick me, and I was so hurt, and I was so mad, and da-da-da. I mean, just on, you know, and on and on. It's it's like this this kind of aerosol pat really high psi anger down there. You know, it's just like popping the cork, and shoo, it's it's coming out. And uh, if if that was your experience with one of your parents. You know at the end of that, you just knew that you were loved and you knew that it was going to be all right. For some of you, it was a friend that you could call in for hours on the phone. You just almost babble on and on and on about the way you felt about things. For some, it is a spouse. But God is like that. Only more so. Do you understand? God's saying, in your anger, do not sin. God's saying, bring your anger to me. <sighs> Uncork it. God, I mean, do you ever talk to God like this? I'm so hurt. This person said this, and I felt this way, and when I felt this way, I felt bad about feeling this way, and, and then I was scared, then I was this. And Look, that's reality. And all that's going to get shoved down and be that thing that that we talked about earlier in this message if we don't take it to the Lord. Kent Hughes says on a psychological level, level we are able to release the anger to the Lord which begins the process of giving us peace. The beginning was to say, God, you're my righteousness. You love me. God, I feel close to you. I know that you want to hear from me. God, here it is. Can you do that? And then I love this: be silent and search your hearts. Be silent and search your hearts. There's not a lot of that in modern world, where we can focus on the nearness of this God who runs the planet and yet He loves us. When we can come and, and express the realities of our hearts, and we can sit on our bed. And we can think about it and really meditate on what's real. We'd have to turn the, the iPod off or the TV off or the computer off or something off to be able to do that. But this is what David says. I love it when I can just be there with God and I can meditate with this, with this one who loves me. And then he says this. He says, worship. Worship. What is Worship. You know, worship basically is ascribing to God what is true about him. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Because God is so great and he is almighty and worship is ascribing to God the, the reality of who he is. But that's not the end of worship, is it? Worship is giving myself to God. As well, and I and I love this verse. Look at verse five. I want you to think about all this this anger, all this stress. As he comes to God, as he does not sin in his anger, as this process unfolds, he says, "Offer right sacrifices, worship, and trust in the Lord." And the word here in the Hebrew literally means. To trust upon the Lord. And the Lord is capital L-O-R-D. It's, the, it's Yahweh, the, the God of covenant, the God of promise, the God who loves you and has promised to keep loving you. And basically what it's saying is, is give your, acknowledge who God is, give yourself to God, throw yourself on God. Don't carry this alone. I don't know about you, but those are words of gigantic comfort to me. That God says To me, a sinner, because he's giving me his righteousness? Throw yourself on me. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. Isn't it just great to have a relationship with God through what Christ has done on the cross? Look, if if you don't have God in the dark or if you don't look to God in the dark, then it's just dark, period. Period. So this is the first thing. Call on God in the dark. The second thing is, and He will shine His light on you. God responds to that. And the way He responds in this passage, again, is so personal. Look at verse 6. Many are asking, Who can show us any good? Well, of course, Absalom's marching with 80% of the army to annihilate David. Where, where can we turn? Who can provide any comfort? What, what's the deal? Many are asking, who can give, show us any good? David says this, Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. And you know, it could, God could have written the Bible to say, Shine some light on us, God. Shine some light on us. Or even some of your light on us. But do you notice how personal this is? Why did God say, Let the light of your face shine upon us. You know why? Because God personally loves us. And God personally cares. And and God is not just streaming out stuff to people. He is literally looking at us in our pain, hearing our anger, watching us meditate, receiving us as we worship and throwing ourselves on him, and then giving us a sense of his personal love and assurance and truth. Isn't that amazing? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. I want you to think about yourself for a minute. I want you to get a middle image. I want you to think about you just in the dark, just you alone. And you're in pain in the dark. And then a light shines on you and you look up at that light and all you can make out is the the faint notion of a smile. And in the faint notion of that smile, what you get is how much he loves you and that it's going to be all right because he loves you. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. You know, in Psalm 3, a lot of people think Psalm 3 is in the morning, the same very morning, and Psalm 4 is at the end, when right before David and them want to go to sleep. In Psalm 3, we sung about it earlier, God is the lifter of our heads. You know, we are, we are dejected. God lifts up our heads. Psalm 4 says He not only lifts up our heads, He shines the light of His face upon us. Who can show us any good? The answer is God alone. And here's the thing, is that you get the sense from Psalm 4. I mean, we we have no idea what kind of pain it is to have a son who literally has betrayed you and wants to kill you. I mean, we just read that so fast. Yes, his son betrayed him, wanted to kill him, is marching with his army, and has shamed him. We can't even imagine what that is like. And yet... We get the sense in Psalm four that as David is, is with God and all these things that we've been talking about, we get the sense that there is this moment where he just knows. He knew back when Saul was chasing him. He knew back before he had to slay Goliath, and, and he knows and, and he knows that God is there and that God loves him. And he can do what God wants him to do, and God's will will be right and good. He doesn't necessarily know what that is, but that he can throw himself on God and trust in God. And, you know, th- it's amazing because he goes to this link. He says, you know what? It's not just assurance. It's not just peace. I feel something strange welling up within me. How can this be? I feel joy because I'm with God. If you had to choose between ten minutes where you knew you were in the presence of almighty God and he loved you and all the money in the world, you ought to choose ten minutes with the reality that is beyond and the eternal reality, the only one who can set our souls at peace, the only one who can give us joy, our rock, the only one who really reigns, Look at verse 7. You have filled my heart. I mean, this is an initiation of God. God shines the light of his face. God fills his heart. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Now look, if you're talking about joy in that culture, there are two main things you need to look at. Uh, There are lots lots of things that brought joy, but two things that come to mind are weddings and feasts. You know? The feasts and the weddings, well, that's just joy. I mean, you've, you've, you've seen movies with, with the Jewish people dancing at the wedding, you know, in circles and all. And woo, they party at weddings. This is awesome. Um, the harvest festivals are even more of a party than that. Because if you're in a, agri- agri- how do you say that? Ag- agricultural thing. I was going to say agrarian, but uh, we'll go with agriculture. If you're in one of those societies, and and there's this enormous harvest, it is time to break out the party. And what David is saying is, is think of the biggest party, the highest joy you've ever felt. Lord, you have filled me with a joy, a real joy greater than their new wine festivals, greater than their harvest festivals. And you can only have that through God. Boy john Ogilvie says, this is no scheme for self-help. God is light and the light shines and gladness comes. And he references C.S. Lewis' words who said, you ought to write this down. We will never know joy by seeking it. Let me say that again. We will never know joy by seeking it. People who grab never get it. God won't let you have it. Now You might have something new and you feel kind of tingly about that. That goes away. I mean, I'm not saying you won't have great feelings. But It won't be that that harvest festival. Deep, abiding joy and, and peace. Joy and gladness, Lewis says, comes as a side effect of the presence of the living God. In thy presence... Is fullness of joy, and at Thy right hand are pleasures evermore. In fact, when C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he wrote a book about it. Remember, does anybody know what it's called? Surprised by Joy. I was an agnostic. I was looking for it my whole life. Christ revealed Himself to me suddenly. I was filled with joy as a byproduct of knowing God. This is what happened with David. And then finally, verse eight. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. Isn't that amazing that God, I mean, that David, with, you know, he could almost put his ear to the ground and almost hear the horses coming, you know, almost hear the foot soldiers coming. And he just sleeps really well that night because he has been realigned in his perspective and his belief has been realigned with God. Without God in the dark. It's just dark. And there are people who do not have a relationship with God because they're trying to earn it on their own. But God has sent His Son. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. God's done it all for us. That's the wonder. Of this thing called grace. Is that it's not even dependent on us. It's dependent on what Jesus has already done. We put our trust in him. We have a relationship with God. But you know that does not mean. You're going to turn to God in the dark. There are lots of believers. Maybe it's because they're capable. Maybe it's because. They've, they're so filled with these expectations. And they've so listened to the magazines. And the TV shows and the commercials. That say you can have it. They're in a dark place of disappointment and anger, and they do not turn to God. They just try to figure out how to get out. You won't get out without God. But if you know God, he wants you to bring it. Call on God in the dark, and he will shine his light on you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. Praising you for who you are. Praising you that you are the one true and living God. A God of glory. And power. And a God of grace and love. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus. To take the penalty for my sin. That I deserve. Because you are righteous and holy. You never put your trust in Christ. But you'd like to. It's just pray with me. Lord, I see it. I I need what you've done. I need you. I turn from everything else and I put my trust on you, Jesus, and what you've done on the cross. Lord, thank you that even now you've come into my life. Even now my sins are forgiven. Even now we have an intimate relationship. You've given me your righteousness. Even now you're going to lead me. Lord, fill me with greater joy. And Lord, I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters who have that Kind of anger under the waterline. And Lord, we all just struggle with that. Lord, would you convince us that we cannot deal with that? Would you cause us to, even today, have a long talk with you and just let our hearts come out before you? And would you just raise up the reality of this grace and your glory and give us that peace and that joy? that we might live with you and for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.